As we come into the presence of God, just like when we first meet someone, the most powerful moment is the one where we hear them speak. Hear now as God speaks from his word. Today's passage comes from Revelation 17, 1 through 6, and 17, 15 through 18, 17a. Hear the word of the Lord. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Now Revelation 17, 15 through 18, 17. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw, where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. 
And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls, for in a single hour... All this wealth has been laid waste. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to see you all again. We have been preaching through the book of Revelation for a while now. And before we jump into this text, I just thought I would mention, um, I mentioned a few weeks ago that we were entering into what is in many ways the heaviest section of Revelation, both in terms of the violence of the imagery and the darkness, and, um, and I just thought I would mention again that we are, this is the last week before we start getting some, some cracks in that. So while this is good and there is much for us to learn from this text, I certainly feel the weight these last few weeks of sitting in some very heavy parts of scripture, and so I just, yeah. But that said, let's now turn to the Lord in prayer as we submit to his word. Father, I pray that you would be with us now as we hear your word and hear your call on our lives. Pray that we might be drawn out from the world and conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Pray that all of us, even though we are sinful, would sit under the authority of your word. And that you would be with me even though I am sinful as I seek to proclaim it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as I thought about how to um, explain these chapters and get us to think about them the right way... Uh, a commentator that I was reading offered a really great way to think about it, I think, which is he said that in many ways these two chapters are sort of like a political cartoon. Let me show you, like, for example, this is one of the most famous political cartoons ever from 1805, where it's the, the prime minister of um, Great Britain and Napoleon dividing up the world, and, which is a pudding, which is a British thing, and, the, you know, the prime ministers are cutting off all of the Americas and feeling like he's getting the better portion, but then you see Napoleon sneakily cutting off Europe, right, um, on the other side of the pudding. Or, I, I avoided any American politics. This is, this is a contemporary one, but I thought, hopefully Brexit isn't something that anyone is going to be too deeply emotionally tied to here. But there was a cartoon, for example, from a couple years ago about Brexit, right? Where it's picturing, you know, Theresa May getting ready to arm wrestle all of these bodybuilders, which are the other countries of the world. And the reason I, I'm showing you that is, when you think about a political cartoon of any stripe, it's doing two things at once. On the one hand... Um, it is dealing in exaggerations and caricatures and these kind of almost grotesque, you know, I mean, like images of things. 
People do not look like they do in real life, right? They have their worst features amplified, and, um, and often they're kind of over the top. But at the same time, they're trying to communicate something true, and honestly communicate it in a way that is often more effective than, um, than trying to do it just through simple prose. Like if you... Um, we would not want read an essay about, like, the international challenges of Brexit to the UK, right? But you see that cartoon, you understand the argument, and you actually kind of feel the weight of the argument that they're trying to make. And that's what a political cartoon is trying to do. And in a sense, these chapters in Revelation are sort of like that political cartoon of the world. They center on Babylon and use the most lurid, exaggerated imagery that they can to kind of imagine her. And they discuss her judgment as this funeral that the whole earth attends and weeps over. What they're trying to do in that is to communicate and illustrate these truths to us. And so what we're going to do this morning is first I'm going to try to explain the cartoon, which I realize in some ways is never as vivid as the cartoon itself, but... Um, John expects his readers to follow what he's kind of imagining, and so I'm going to try to, like, put the little, like, tags and names that people in political cartoons put in it, just explain what's going on in this chapter, and then we're going to discuss what this means for us and how it would call us to live. First, we need to understand what John is saying, and so let's start by asking, what is Babylon in these visions? What is this great prostitute Babylon who sits on the waters? Normally, I would first walk through the text and we'd kind of piece by piece see the answer. But I'm going to actually give you the answer first, and then we're going to go back and see it in the text, okay? The answer is that Babylon represents the cultural, economic, and political systems of this age in their idolatry, decadence, and opposition to the gospel, which I know is a mouthful, but it represents the cultural and economic and political systems of the age in their idolatry, decadence, and opposition to the gospel. We'll just walk through that now. First, let's talk about the first part of that, what it represents. And first we should say Babylon is an actual city, right? It is the center of the Babylonian Empire, which was a major part of the Old Testament. And we are told that she's a great city. In Revelation 16, it says, The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. But that city is not, for John's readers, actually Babylon. Babylon is not, you know, I mean, the center of the world in John's day. And in fact, he uses imagery from the Old Testament of lots of other great cities. Just consider this. In verse um, 17, it says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And each part of that is actually a reference to a different Old Testament city. So for example, the great prostitute part in the prophet Nahum, this is how he describes Nineveh. He says, um, and I'm just reading you the Bible here just to be clear. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. And it goes on like that in Nahum. And that's all about Nineveh, right? Which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Or the city of Tyre gets described as a city on the waters. Um, in Ezekiel 27, he says, um, Now you, son of man, raise a lamentation over Tyre. And say to Tyre, who dwells at the entrance to the sea, your borders are in the heart of the sea. So these are two other great cities that are opposed to God's kingdom in the Old Testament. And Babylon here also seems to be identified with Rome, which is the great city that rules over the world of John's readers. Um, we're told in verse 9 of chapter 17 that the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. 
And Rome is popularly known as the city on seven hills or seven mountains, right? And in fact, there's famous pictures of Roma, which is like the personified goddess of Rome, as this lady dressed all fancy, laying across the hills in just the way that John seems to picture this great prostitute. And so he's using this imagery from all these different great cities, these central kind of cultural and political institutions of the world combined to picture Babylon, which is to say that um, we're supposed to see Babylon as standing in for that, the cultural and economic and political power of the world. And then he highlights three things about that. First, he says their idolatry. He highlights that. In many ways, a lot of the language of sexual immorality is about that. If you haven't been here, we've talked about this earlier in Revelation, but one of the constant ways that Scripture uses the image of sexual immorality is as an image of idolatry, which is to say that God is the rightful lover and king of the world, and we turn aside from him, and we are faithless to him, and that is throughout the Old Testament, um, the way idolatry is pictured. And in Revelation, John uses it that way. So John is saying that Babylon is using her influence to encourage idolatry and turn people aside to worship things that are not God. He also emphasizes Babylon's decadence. She lives in luxury and finery and excessive wealth. Take how he describes her. He says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality, which is her idolatry. Or if you go to chapter 18, I'm going to put up on the screen, there's this lament of all of the merchants, and I am not going to read, but he lists like 30 things, right, that, that the merchants are supplying to Babylon in her wealth. It is especially noteworthy that the end of that list is slaver, it entails Rome's slavery as sort of the ultimate embodiment of its decadence. Um, even human beings she buys and sells. And it's that decadence and luxury that actually helps her lead people into idolatry. So, for example, in 18.3, it says, The nations have drunk the wine of the passions of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So you have that sense that they're drawn into worship her through her luxury. And last, we're told that Babylon opposes the gospel and God's people. That is symbolized, again here, everything is in its most extreme forms. That's symbolized through her martyring the saints. So, for example, in 17.6, it says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. She does that because ultimately she is serving the beast. And if you remember back in chapter 13, the beast is setting himself up as a false god to be worshipped. The beast represents the empire and power of this world. And he is setting himself up against God. And we see that even here when the beast is described as he was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. That is a dark mockery of God who throughout Revelation is the one who was and is and is to come. So going back to that definition once more, Babylon represents the cultural and economic and political systems of this age in their idolatry, decadence, and opposition to the gospel. Hopefully you can see that there. And then we also hear about the fall of Babylon, we should say, to finish explaining the cartoon. John doesn't just describe her, but he records her fall. Um, and chapter 18, for example, laments over it. It says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons 
haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. The image there, which would have been more familiar in the ancient world than in ours, is of a city that has been conquered and abandoned. And so you're walking through these empty streets, and they're haunted by ghosts and by wild animals. Um, Babylon has fallen, and she's fallen for two reasons. John says, on the one hand, she's fallen because of the judgment of God. He says, pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. So that's an image of God's just judgment falling on Babylon. Throughout this, we're supposed to feel her corruption and feel kind of revolted by her. And we see that just in the ways that she traffics in human souls and abuses and exploits people and leads astray the nations, so God's judgment falls on her. But it's also worth noticing that Babylon destroys herself. And these are the same events. It's not two separate things. Or rather, that the beast, who is the source of Babylon's power, is also the one who destroys her. So at the end of chapter 17, it says, The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up. She's riding on the back of the beast in power, and the beast is the thing that also ultimately destroys her which again sounds the theme throughout Revelation of this self-defeating nature of evil. That evil is irrational, destructive, and often turns against itself. All right. We're almost done describing it. I know this is one of those sermons where we have to front-load the explanation and then we get into applying it to our lives. But one more thing we should notice, which is the call of Babylon, which is to say the call we are given in light of this vision. Because like in all of these visions, John makes clear what he wants us to do. From 18.4, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. When John describes Babylon, he is intentionally doing it in a way that will make his readers uneasy. I'm not going to walk you through all of it because we've done enough detail stuff, but if you remember back in Revelation 2 and 3, there's these letters to the churches, and three of the churches are warned against compromising with the, the Roman Empire and with the surrounding culture. And John takes the exact phrases he used to describe what those churches are doing, and they appear here in his description of Babylon. And two of the other churches also face opposition and persecution from the world, which obviously also has echoes here. But the point of that is to say that John is not describing Babylon in these lurid, vivid ways so that the Christians could be like, oh, like, look at those people in Babylon. You know, we're, we're so much better than them. He's saying them because he's saying, like, some of you are participating in this. You are being tempted to do this. Look and see this thing that you are being tempted to compromise with. Look and See who you are in bed with, in a sense, is what John is trying to ask his readers to do. You can also see that in the laments in chapter 18. It's kind of, we might wonder why he records these long songs by the kings and the merchants and others in the earth who are mourning the fall of Babylon. And the answer is probably because John is asking us to ask how we would feel were she to fall and whether we would join in those same laments. Again, trying to highlight to us the ways that we can be compromised. All right, so that's the cartoon. We have this, this city, Babylon, which is Rome, and it's just also just the kind of power of this world in a general way, in her idolatry and luxury, and the ways that she is opposed to the gospel of God. How do we apply that to our lives? Um, so our starting place, I think Craig Kester, who wrote a commentary on this, he's a theologian, 
gives a helpful starting place. The way he says it is simply, he says, the Christians in Asia Minor were called to resist social currents and institutions that were driven by the seduction of luxury and license and power. Readers of later generations are called to do the same wherever those appear. Here's what that means. It means that this description is not just of a city at a point in time, right? It, it, it's an image of Babylon and Tyre and Nineveh and Rome. And the reason for that is it's supposed to be an image that we see to some extent reflected in every incarnation, every age in our world. We're supposed to look around ourselves and see it. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you the point. Then we're going to stop because we need to set some groundwork because I don't want to jump right into the point. And then we're going to apply it. But the point of this, I think unsurprisingly by that point, is to say that we live in Babylon. We in our place are in Babylon, just like those first Christians are. But don't get ahead of yourself, because first I want to acknowledge a really important caveat. Um, If you take the Bible as a whole, it sees two forces at work in the world. One of those forces is sin's corruption. Thanks to the fact that we have rebelled against God— Everything in the world is to some extent corrupted and darkened and twisted by sin. Our hearts are, our lives are, our societies and institutions are, because we built them. Everything is corrupted by sin. But the other force at work in Scripture is what we could call common grace, which is to say that God is also at work in the world still, graciously restraining the effects of sin and doing good things. So we are not as terrible as we would be left to our own devices, and there's real good in the world. This is why even in the Bible you'll find, like, Paul quotes pagan poets as having real insights about God, or there's, you know, quotations from Egyptian wisdom literature in the Bible, and it's the reason that we can recognize, and Scripture recognizes, real good in people that aren't Christians, right? There's two— Common grace and sin's corruption are both at work in the world. Some passages in the Bible focus on one side of that, and some passages focus on the other side of that. And um, the book of Revelation as a whole is focused on the first of those two things. And this passage is definitely focused on the first of those two things. But the reason I'm explaining that is to say that this is our text, and we're going to apply it. But I want to say before we do that, that the common grace piece is also very important. Right? I'm going to say some very hard things in just a minute about our world and our country and the, the time and place that we live. But I want you to understand that there's also things we should be grateful for and blessings and things to give thanks for and workings of God's common grace. Does that make sense? So I'm acknowledging that. We should remember that. That's not what this text is about. So we're going to focus on the sin's corruption side. So this is Babylon. We live in Babylon and are being tempted to compromise with it, just like John's first reader. First, to be clear, it is not—I'm not in saying that, saying that there's, like, this line you cross, and, like, certain countries are Babylon once they cross it, and then, like, other countries are, you know, are on the side of the angels, right? The idea is that every worldly place and in every worldly time is to some extent manifesting these realities of Babylon. So, We're going to talk about some things that are true of the U.S., but, like, don't move to Mexico, right? Like, it's Babylon, too. Or do—you know know what I mean. Like, we're not engaging in that kind of thing. But let's reflect on our place that we live. We are a deeply idolatrous country. In the first place, we deeply, deeply idolize this self in a way that is almost unique in world history. The way we talk about self-actualization and self-fulfillment and being your best self and loving yourself and being self-confident and all of that, right? Like, like, 
we talk about that continually, and we almost never talk about the things that in many times and places would have been emphasized, like self-restraint or self-sacrifice. We worship the self. We worship success. If something works, particularly if it financially turns a profit, like we, we love that. I mean, just think about this. For most of history in most times and places, you know who the wise men were that like wrote books and people studied and admired? Like they were dudes who gave away their worldly possessions and like lived in caves out in the desert. Or <laughs> they, they were people who, um, who, who were being generous and restrained in terms of how they lived in the world. They, our wise men, are CEOs. <laughs> Those are the people that we look to. We worship pleasure, money. We could list any number of idols. We are a deeply idolatrous country. And we are unbelievably decadent. We have a ludicrous amount of wealth. I mean, just think about, somehow we don't see this as crazy, but like, we spend money just because we enjoy the feeling of buying things. Right? <laughs> like, have you, you know, have you never seen that about your house? That there are times that you're just like, I feel kind of sad and I'm going to buy this thing. And I'm going to kind of say that it's because, like, I need the thing. But really, it's just because, like, it feels good to, like, you know, make this thing mine that wasn't mine. And I know this because I can look around my house, and I'm like, okay, there's some things I bought because I need them. There's some things I bought because I'm legitimately enjoying them, and that's still fine. But there's a lot of stuff that I've bought. And I'm like, why, why did I buy this, right? Or, or, or think about this. Um, I like to read old books. And one of the things that has long convicted me, and I mean just from a couple hundred years ago, you'll read these, these satirists like, like Jonathan Swift or Voltaire, and they'll describe the nobles, right? You know, they're writing in their world, and they're describing like the super rich nobles of their world. And, and usually they're describing them in kind of exaggerated ways, but they're trying to say like, do you know how excessively gobsmackingly luxurious these, the lives of these nobles are? They do things like, like they have dessert every day. Like, they, they spend their weekends playing sports and, and, and relaxing. They, they have closets with, with outfits that they rarely wear. And their readers are like, that's crazy. <laughs> like, who on earth would live like that? And I read that, and I'm like, all of us live like that. And look, I know that we've been trained to say those things are blessings. And there's another angle on which we could have that discussion, because that's true too, right? Again, the common grace and sin's corruption thing. Those things can be such traps for our hearts. Um, they are the means, the, the wine, the intoxicating wine of Babylon, John says, right, that leads us into idolatry. And Babylon is opposed to the gospel, we said. And we have these images of persecution and martyrdom. And this is where we need to be careful in two directions, because on the one hand, we still live in a country where this is much less true than many other countries, and we should really be grateful for that. We should not take that for granted. Um, I think there's this tendency in our circles to maybe over-exaggerate how persecuted we are, and to have these books that are like, well, like, you know, that's true, but next year it won't be true anymore. And like, I don't know the future, and maybe that's the case, but... For now, at least, I mean, the, the people who write those books don't know the future either. But for now, at least, we should be grateful for the fact that we're not facing martyrdom and imprisonment and things like that. But it's also true that um, there's always been two ways that the world opposes the church. One is persecution, and the other is subversion, 
right? So you can persecute, you can try to crush it kind of by force outwardly, but you can also try to subvert it to make it compromised and undermine it and make it lose its power. And I think in many ways in Europe and America for centuries, that's been the pattern of what's happened in our church. I just reflect, let me just give you one piece of evidence. And I know this is hard stuff, and in just a minute I'm going to try to speak some grace to it, but we, we need to feel it. Just in China, right? The threat of imprisonment is not enough to keep Christians from gathering to worship the Lord. I mean, they, they have to like, you know, they, they, it is a real thing that, um, that at any point the state could just show up and arrest everybody at church, and it happens, and there are pastors. There are pastors that, that I've been trying to consistently pray for for years who have been in prison four years simply for, for being pastors, right? In China, it is um, <clears throat> the fact that they can be arrested is not enough to keep them from sharing the good news about Jesus and evangelizing their neighbors. I mean, I, again, I remember reading this account from this church where they— um, they would go do, like, evangelism in parks, and they, they chose the parks based on there being in different police precincts so that they could have as many different officers arrest them as possible so that they could meet them and share Jesus with them too, right? And I think about that, and I'm like, in the West, right, a football game is enough to keep us from gathering for worship. I mean, in the West, like, the fact that it feels kind of embarrassing is enough to discourage me from sharing the good news of Jesus with people. Which society has done a better job of opposing Christianity? Now listen, I know that that is hard. And, um, and I say all of that and we feel guilty. I am not prone to bringing it quite as hard as I just did. So let me say three things about this. One, just to be clear, I am not saying that as anyone who is above that. I, as I wrestle and try to grow as a disciple, I really recognize that my heart is still deeply enmeshed with materialism deeply enmeshed with some of those ways that we're compromised. This is not something that we should pretend like we're just going to solve easily. Two, it is appropriate for us in some ways to feel guilty and challenged by this text um, because that's the point of it. John's whole purpose in this is to challenge his readers. But three, feeling guilty itself is never the point <laughs> Of Christianity, right? There, there is a, a sort of guilt that brings repentance, and then there's a guilt that just makes you feel bad, and those are not the same thing. And so our question, if we feel convicted by some of those challenges, is to say, well, what should we do? How do we turn from this? How do we come out of Babylon? Remember, that is the calling that John gives, to come out of her. He says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plague. First, let's say what it does not mean to come out of Babylon. It does not mean completely leaving the world. There are Christian groups that try to do this, right? Like the, the Amish. They say, well, we're supposed to come out of the world and not, be in, you know, not become complicit with her, so we're going to try to create this completely different society. And that does not work, and that is not what Scripture actually calls us to. God's mission demands that we be engaged with the world and that we be loving our neighbors and we be building up our communities and we be sharing the hope of Jesus with folks and we be showing through acts of charity and kindness the, the gospel in our lives. All of that is a part of our calling and you cannot live in a monastery and do those things. You have to live in the world in order to be on that mission. So what does it mean to come out? I'm going to try to give one answer this morning. 
I think this is a big question, but let me try to give one answer. And it's, I have, um, like all of us, been thinking a lot about um, the coronavirus, like most of us at least, um, because you cannot turn on the news or log into the internet or go anywhere without hearing about it. Um, maybe I'll just mention, this is not at all about the text. Um, look, don't be, don't be a fool, but also don't freak out about such things, right? Be wise, do the things they recommend. I had someone ask me whether we will start canceling church, and the answer is no. <laughs> there's, there's not even any confirmed cases of coronavirus in Illinois, right? Now, um, if it becomes an issue, there are steps we will take. Like, we probably won't be shaking each other's hands after the opening worship songs if, you know, if it's a live thing right here. But, but anyway, we're not going to dig into that, but understand that. But here's the thing about coronavirus, right? <laughs> Sorry, coming back to the text. Um, you hear all this stuff in the news stories. It's big and scary about, like, global pandemics and, you know, and infection rates and mortality rates. And, you know, you have all this discussion, and you've got all these, like, guys from the CDC who are, like, way smarter than I am on the TV, and they're discussing all these really complicated things. Um, but when you ask them, what should I do, they all say exactly the same thing, and it is not complicated, which is, wash your hands, <laughs> right? They just say, well, wash your hands for 20 seconds and do a good job of that. And they say that because if you just adopted that habit, it would actually dramatically curtail the spread of disease. I think... That in some ways, when we think about coming out of Babylon, the most helpful answers we can have deal less with sort of big sweeping ideas and more with faithful, simple habits that we adopt. So let me just walk through three types of habits that I think the Bible would call us to grow in. Three types of habits. I'm just going to sort them as daily habits, weekly habits, occasional habits. First, there's a set of daily habits that we are called to develop, that help us come out of Babylon. And in particular, those are prayer, praise, and sitting in God's word. Prayer, every day we should be praying, and as we grow in disciples, we should be growing in prayer. Prayer is not just like listing, like here's the sick people I know, although that's an important part of it, but it is ultimately communing with God, listening to him, sharing your heart with him, spending time with him. Praise, that can be a part of prayer, but, um, but we are called to give thanks to God for the things that he gives us and give thanks to him for who he is. And every day, I mean, anytime you walk out the door on some level, your heart should be giving praise to God, right? Especially like a, an afternoon like this one, it looks like that we're going to have. You just say, Lord, like, you know, may you be praised and glorified. Doing that daily and then being engaged with God's word in some way each day. In many ways, the word of God, as it speaks to us, is sort of like the counter narrative to Babylon that's helping to remind us of the truth. And that can look, again, if, if that's not something you've ever done at all, just try, like, reading a devotional or listening to a chapter of Scripture while you're driving to work. If it's something you want to grow in, I'd be happy to visit with you. There's lots of ways you can grow in it, things like Bible studies and stuff, or um, there's great plans where you read through the Bible in a year or two. Um, both Elizabeth and I use different plans like that. And it's a good um, thing to grow in, but wherever you're at, trying to daily, in some way, be engaged with God's word. Weekly habits. In particular, that is what gathered worship is meant to be. It is a time, like literally what we're supposed to be doing is coming out of Babylon and gathering together to be reminded of our identity, that we are God's people, that he is our Lord. And in addition, at least weekly, we should be having meaningful relationships with other Christians, right? We also have relationships with non-Christians, but... Um, 
just spending time in community with brothers and sisters who will help build us up. And then occasional habits, meaning things you don't do like every week or whatever, but that can also be useful for coming down. Let me name two. One of them is fasting. To be clear, when we talk about fasting in Scripture, we're not talking about the intermittent fasting diet stuff to lose weight. That's fine, but fasting in Scripture means for a season intentionally giving up some good thing in order to um, both be engaged with prayer and to discipline our flesh. And the reason I want to name fasting here, well, there's two reasons. One is because this is the season of Lent, and some of you might be fasting from different things right now, um, food or some other good, pleasurable things. But part of the reason for fasting is that, um, is that it actually makes you realize just how engaged your heart is with these things, right? That, like, you don't realize how much, um, how much those, those pieces of that luxury of the world, how much control they have over your heart until you try to stop doing them, right? Like, no, nobody realizes what an issue, like, their cell phone is until they try to go a day without looking at it. Um, so it reveals it to us. And then one other occasional habit, in-depth self-examination. In-depth self-examination. I wish I had a fancier word for this, but, um, look, we should be examining ourselves every day in one sense as Christians and trying to grow, but there is great value in occasionally— like once or twice a year, right? You take like one day off work that isn't to go on some trip and you go off in a cabin somewhere or, you know, just find some time alone with the Lord to really big picture say, like, where am I at in my life? What is Jesus calling me to be? How can I grow to be more like him? And if out of that, ideally, come out with a couple of core things that are just like, I'm going to really try to engage with this. All right. So that is, on the one hand, hopefully a more manageable list of habits. On the other hand, I know that's a list of habits. But the reason I run through that is this. Um, I realize that sounds like a lot, especially if you have never done any of those things. And, um, and on the same time, I realize that that can sound like not enough, right? <laughs> when we think about Babylon and the way it has this grasp over our lives. But, but here's the thing. Coming out of Babylon is not a decision that you're going to make and be done. Coming out of Babylon is actually itself a habit that we have to cultivate continually because it is where we live. It is our hearts that have to be constantly coming out of it. The, way, the image I always have is of like, um, you know, it has gravity. You know, it's like this gravitational pull, and the only way to be moving away from that gravitational pull is to constantly be having things push us in the other direction. And that's what these kinds of habits are supposed to be doing. But at the same time, because it's that kind of ongoing process— has to do with growing in those habits, it means that it is okay that you don't figure it all out because you never will arrive in that set of habits. What's important is that you engage with that process of seeking to come out of it. So my invitation to us this morning would be this. Take some time this afternoon or this week and reflect on the world around us and try to name those ways that our hearts are being captured by Babylon and then ask how we can seek to grow in some of the practices that will help us come out of it. As we do that, we will more and more become people of the land. Let's pray. Father, my heart is convicted, as I'm sure many are, of the ways that we have become complicit in the world. Thank you, first of all, most of all, for loving us anyway and saving us 
even though we are in so many ways captive. But I pray that you would be speaking to our hearts and calling us that we might grow to be your people, to follow after you. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ.